0: Welcome back to CAST from the past. Again, my name is Annie and today we are discussing Colombia, specifically the land redistribution, along with racial and ethnic issues that have affected the country for many years. We are excited to be joined by Dr. Correo Choa, a postdoctoral fellow here at the Rice Academy of Fellows, who is based in the History Department and will soon be starting as an Assistant Professor of History. She's here today to discuss what these topics mean in the past, present, and future of Colombia. So to begin, do you want to introduce yourself and what your research focuses on?
1: Uh, Hi, everyone. It's lovely to be here. My name is uh, Laura Correo-Choa. I'm a historian of Latin America and the Caribbean, and my research primarily focuses on questions of mobilization and race, race and racism uh, in Colombia from the late 19th century to the 21st century.
0: All right, well, thank you so much again for being here today. Um, so just to start off, what has land redistribution kind of historically looked like in Colombia and what does that mean like in the context of mobilization?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Colombia uh, historically has been, uh, land has been very unequally organized. Uh, and of course we need to uh, go back to to the process of colonization and colonialism and not unlike other parts of the Americas, there's um, um, the, the country that is today, Colombia, when through the indigenous populations that inhabited uh, were uh, increasingly dispossessed from their lands. And so we get into this process where land becomes central to political struggles from the colonial period to, um, to the present. And so in particularly when we get to the 19th century in the post-independence period, land was increasingly concentrated in a very uh, selective group of individuals. And these individuals also, while there were some uh, people of African descent who had some access to land, it was disproportionately concentrated in white or mestizo um, landowners' hands. And this process of land became increasingly central to the political uh, conflicts, that have defined Colombia in many ways in respect to other countries in the Americas. For example, in the late 19th century, you start seeing this process of uh, efforts by liberal administrations and subsequently by both conservative and liberal administrations to essentially disband the resguardos and the resguardos being uh, the collective lands that indigenous people were able to retain um, through the process of colonialism. So that happens on the one hand, At the same time, you also have this process of mass proletarization that happens as the expert economies expand. So, for instance, with the United Fruit Company in the Caribbean or with the uh, sugar haciendas uh, in the Pacific uh, region, you start seeing a lot of peasants uh, of all ethnic and racial backgrounds increasingly lose access to land. But this process is of course racialized, right? So it has a particular uh, disproportionate impact on indigenous and on black peasants who are increasingly forced to uh, work under what turn out to be very um, oppressive systems of labor. So this is one of the aspects. Uh, uh, This has been central to, uh, to land struggles the other important event that is um, important to consider in Colombia is has to do with the repercussions of La Violencia, which is a civil war that takes place between 1948 and approximately 1958, and it is largely con- a, a, a land and questions of land play a significant role in this uh, struggle. So this is the in the war leads to hundreds of thousands of deaths, tons of mobilization happens across the country. The inability of the state to uh, address demands for land serves as a catalyst for um, for la violencia. And uh, it also leads to the emergence of the guerrillas that have become kind of central to understanding Colombia's recent history, including the FARC and the ELN. the literature that has been produced by the Center for Historical Memory, which is trying to essentially think through the history of the conflict civil war which we trace to about the la violencia to uh uh to the present has uh really been able to show the centrality of land and of land uh inequality as an engine of conflict and in within this process black and indigenous people participate in uh particular ways due to the different institutional occasions that they uh that that they occupy in the country, as well as because of, you know, historical patterns of racism and exclusion and whatnot.
0: Thank you so much. Kind of on that topic, um, thinking about land, and obviously there's a difference in between, there's lots of discussion about the um, difference in between kind of rural and urban areas. So what has, um, or has there been kind of a difference between the rural and urban um, and mobilization efforts of Afro-Colombians and then also indigenous people in Colombia?
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think um, Colombia, as I'm going to discuss in a little bit, is is very particular because of how visible, how continuous, and how successful uh, Black and Indigenous political struggles in the rural areas have been. But just for context, Colombia is largely has until 1970 was largely a rural country, uh, so that's something that is worth uh, keeping in mind as we kind of. Think about the periodization of, of land struggles and of um, more broad political struggles in the country, um, but in part because of la violencia and of you know the the inability of the Colombian state to address the land question, you see a lot of uh, people migrating to uh, to cities, including places like Bogotá, Medellín, Cali, and whatnot. But it's specifically, uh, it But talking specifically about Black and Indigenous mobilization, I think the 1991 constitutions and the political struggles uh, that produced it are uh, kind of highlight the centrality of Black and Indigenous rural struggles. So, for those who are unaware, in Colombia in 1991, it passed a very um, a new constitution, replacing one that had um, that had been written in the late 19th century. Unlike in the U.S., the writing constitutions and producing new constitutions is not atypical for uh, Latin American countries. so just to flag that, but this constitution was really important because you recognized Colombia as a multicultural and as a pluricultural country, and it also granted significant um, collective lands as well as culture and ethnic rights to Black and Indigenous populations. So the process around the constitution, it revolve around mass popular mobilization throughout the country, but in the particular, but in the case of black and indigenous people, they f- black and indigenous peasants in the Colombian Pacific coast form an alliance to try to make sure that their voices and their demands were to be included in the constitution. So a result of this constitution um, and, you know, particular laws that, I don't know if we want to get um, Uh, into detail, but essentially Black communities in the Colombian Pacific coast, in other parts of the country, but I want to be, to emphasize that this is primarily in the country's Pacific coast, as well as Indigenous people were able to sort of uh, get um, institutional recognition of their collective forms of land, as well as uh, to processes such as ethnic Consulta previa, which translates to uh, previous consultation, and this means that if the Colombian state is going to pass policies that will affect Black and Indigenous uh, populations, uh, these communities have to agree to it. So, in theory, it's supposed to allow for uh, important and uh, fo- important forms of political and cultural autonomy. This is not always gets implemented, but just want to mention that this is one of the things that happen. But at the same time, in addition to this kind of systemic rural mobilization that has been very powerful and significant and played a and in many ways materialized in the 1991 constitution, you also have a, a process that happens uh, uh, with this kind of recognition of multicultural rights which is the escalation of the Colombian conflict from the late 1980s, especially in the 1990s, and peaking in the 2000s. And while you you have multicultural rights sort of being recognized in some kind of way, you also have this process of mass dispossession and dislocation of Black and Indigenous communities. So the moment that you start getting the kind of, uh, the legal titles for Black populations in the Pacific, you also see the encroachment of these communities at the hands of right-wing paramilitaries as well as left-wing guerrilla movements and the military. And so like, there's a process of dispossession for in the 2000s, Colombia became the country with the largest internally displaced population. And if you were to unpack those statistics, it is disproportionately Afro-Colombian and disproportionately indigenous. So that's a process that happens. It happens through massacres, systemic violations of human rights, uh, through rape, through a whole rate of, uh, of violent processes. But this also has an effect of transforming cities in that a lot of Black and Indigenous people and especially Black people move to, to the cities. And then there, they're also sort of dealing um, you know, with, with different dynamics of different manifestations of uh, racism and of systemic racism, as well as unemployment, lack of opportunity, urban segregation, and this instigates particular kinds of mobilization. So in the past few years, uh, for anyone, I don't know if anyone follows Colombian politics, but some of it did end up in North American media, and it had to do with Los civicos, and the, like essentially mass strikes. And in places like Cali, these strikes were largely led by Black and Indigenous uh, people, and in particular, uh, youth. So you see different kinds of politics and, and you know co- drawing connections between their experiences um, uh, of Black Lives Matter and, and kind of drawing connections to kind of broader political struggles that are happening in the Americas. But I do want to highlight that these processes are happening in dialogue. The, the urban and the rural struggles are not disconnected. Often the activists move between uh, similar circles and you know they're also rethinking what it means to have political autonomy in, in the city, what it means to not just in the in, in rural spaces, but it, what it means to have um, to pass anti races and politics, for example, in an urban space versus in uh, those territorios colectivos or the collective lands of black populations.
0: Kind of on that note, um, you talked about how violence and kind of dispossession in rural areas often drove people to cities. Um, Was do you think the violence, the type of violence, or the severity or intensity of violence differed between the cities and the rural areas, or were they both kind of similar? Um, I know, particularly like with rural areas, we deal with a lot with the exploitation of resources that come with great violence uh, on top of, you know, conflicts like wars and stuff like that. But do you think, was there kind of a difference in the violence or was it kind of um, a blanket of like a similar type between cities and rural areas?
1: I think it's important to, I think these are definitely connected processes, but the intensity of the Colombian armed conflict or what has been defined as a Colombian armed conflict has overwhelmingly happened to rural communities, both Afro-descendant, indigenous, mestizo, white, the, the war in itself, like the these most intense phases, these most violent phases have certainly taken place in rural areas. And as you alluded to in terms of environmental, of the connections with um, environmental justice or injustice. Um, these are areas that are also, for instance, the Pacific is, is rich with mineral resources, has been, his, uh, El Choco, for example, which is one of, the, one of the departments in the Pacific coast, has historically uh, produced uh, minerals, including gold, through the history of enslavement, post-abolition, and, uh, you know, a, a longer historical process. But the violence in these rural spaces were very um were very intense and it was perpetrated by a wide range of actors. And and some of these worst manifestations were like dozens of of massacres that took place primarily in the 90s and 2000s. That said, the urban context brings its own kind of particular manifestations of violence that are also mediated by race, by racism. So for instance, um, you know, as I I alluded to earlier, there's of course, you know, urban crime, systemic racism, urban segregation. There's other ways to kind of perhaps conceive of this experiences as part of, you know, systemic violences that are not disconnected uh, from what's happening in rural areas. But in some, and and sometimes this violence, is in itself very direct and not dissimilar to what happens in rural areas. So for example, during the national strike, uh, the reaction from the state was incredibly violent, and was especially violent in uh, in historically or uh, Afro-Latina neighborhoods in places like Cali, where helicopters were essentially deployed and where many young students were shot at. Right. So I think again, uh, it, the the dynamics are particular, but they're not necessarily disconnected.
0: Um like we kind of mentioned earlier that environmental racism and environmental kind of injustice has been uh, something that has definitely affected the Afro-Colombian and then indigenous peoples in Colombia. How has this affected perhaps mobilization efforts? Um, For instance, like, I suppose if you take all the resources you're kind of taking away um, or just like the exploitation of resources for so long, has that affected how is that affected? I suppose their ability to mobilize.
1: I think environment. So I think in the Colombian context, especially for um, many Black and Indigenous movements, the land question and the environmental question are not separate. they are they're essentially the same. Um, they're inextricably linked, right? Um, so the and and so many of the um, one of the ways in which environmental injustice sort of happens against these communities, it has to be, for instance. With a constant violation of previous consultation in ethnic territory so and this happens both on one level. it happens because illegal actors are um doing illegal mining and displacing communities, but it can also happen with the state, which is quote unquote trying to implement some kind grant some concession to a mining company but the the constitutional requirements of previous consultations are not necessarily followed through so you can have it at various uh at various different levels and just to know for instance our current um and I'm saying our because I I am colombian and I am a colombian citizen the our current vice uh vice president francia marquez she herself is an environmental uh and I am I am I'm, I'm an environmental social leader but she's also a um, land justice leader, so you know the the struggles are very much uh, interconnected.
0: In that manner, um, like we're seeing with this new government, uh, obviously she is kind of at the forefront of this this very public face, I suppose, for kind of uh, land justice. How has um, how have recent movements towards land redistribution reflected past ones, or have there been uh, many changes in the way they've been approached, or um, maybe employed throughout the um throughout the last few decades
1: yeah absolutely so i think it's important to think of the 90s as exceptional in many ways for example like the the fact that these uh collect black collective territories have are seen as constitutionally regulated is an you know it's an extraordinary achievement the product of of uh, mobilization, but these struggles are also rooted in much earlier histories, right? So like uh, land struggle and struggle, I should say, struggles over land have been just so central to Colombian political mobilization. And so one of the things that I'm able to trace through my research is the earlier configuration of these movements. So indigenous uh, movements often, and black movements as and black black individuals often organized through the broader kind of class and peasant platforms that were available to them. So even when there were um, these multiracial class movements, which not always and and didn't have a racial or an ethnic agenda, but black peasants and indigenous peasants used these spaces to sort of articulate claims for land. So that's one way in which it happened. And you also had more um, racially defined or ethnically defined political movements that go... Much earlier um, than the 1990s to the mainland. So, for example, in, in the indigenous case in the 1970s, you see the emergence of dozens of uh, ethnically specific organizations whose main demand was to both protect and expand the resguardos and as well as uh, to demand for. Greater forms of political autonomy and um, bilingual education—all these sorts of um, of political agendas—and then I think what the 90s does that is that is different is the there's a new space that is that has been shaped by a kind of a, a, a different inter- international space that allows for more ethnically and racially the, uh, specific demands. That allows Black peasants in the Pacific to articulate a more kind of ethnic and racial and racial uh, agenda in terms of demanding land. So it's not that these people hadn't mobilized until the 1990s. It's that the way they were making claims and demands happened under different um, at, at, under different types of organizations and different repertoires, But they they're always connected to earlier struggles that can you know you can trace back to. Uh, the colonial period, of course.
0: Again, we had mentioned earlier, Francia Marquez, uh, the vice president of Colombia, um, is kind of one of the leading faces of that. What has the role of particularly women been in this land redistribution um, throughout the decades?
1: Yeah, women have been absolutely central. Uh, I, for instance, um, do some collaborative work with the with the Ethnic Commission, which is an alliance of black and indigenous organizations that came together in in 2016 to be included in the peace negotiations. And a lot of the the women have been historically involved in all facets of of political organizations. They were especially uh, central in the 1990s or visible, I I shouldn't say especially central, but visible uh, to a historian's eye. In, in the way they were able to sort of organize and make demands. And, and, and for instance, the Ethnic Commission has now uh, a section where Black and Indigenous women come together to make both, is kind of an internal struggle and an external struggle internally, like to make sure that spaces such as this one take into consideration the particular uh, experiences and struggles of Black and Indigenous women, as well as LGBTQ plus people. Uh, Internally, but and externally, to uh, to make sure that this kind of uh, both the domestic agenda and the international agenda doesn't lose sight of of their own particular experiences. So yeah, the women have always been uh, have been central and are the ones who are constantly also pushing uh, both for uh, in the case of the uh, of the peace agreement of 2016 to have both an ethnic lens, but also a gender lens. So that takes kind of an intersectional approach to the experiences um, of black and indigenous uh, people and to those who have been victimized by the conflict.
0: Have women between um, within indigenous groups been perceived ever differently than um, Afro-Colombians? Have they ever, have they, um, from years been perceived as like any differently, or do they occupy a different space um, within that class system earlier, or have they been kind of um, i suppose grouped together, particularly in these kind of mobilization efforts?
1: I think uh what we see is like uh so there's instances in which these black and indigenous people and black and indigenous women mobilize in similar platforms organized together, and one of those examples of course being the end commission, but they also have their own you know, particular um, and kind of separate forms of political organizing. But what I think is worth considering here is the Black and Indigenous women occupied different kind of institutional locations within, in, in reference to the state. And by this, I mean that the way the state sees indigeneity is different than the way that it conceives of Blackness and this has particular kind of uh, implications for Black and for indigenous women. So historically, the Colombian state uh, sort of recognized indigeneity. It was a much more legible category. The resguardos were a colonial category that continue in particular ways after independence. So the claims for land kind of, of indigenous people are in some ways more legible to the state, whereas those of people of African descent are not seen as legible in the same way, so I think the the to think about the particular kind of experiences that they have requires sort of you know thinking more broadly about the the different places that these groups occupy within both within respects to the state but also within the national imaginary but that said, I think if you look at kind of um just social statistics about uh, access to education um Access to jobs, it black and indigenous the, the histories and experiences of black and indigenous women intersect in very particular in, in similar ways, in that they're often uh paid less, have less access to uh to opportunities, to education, experience very systemic forms of violence throughout the conflict, very uh, and by this I mean like sexual violence that was often incredibly racialized. So there's ways in which that the the way they experience the nation is particular, but in terms of these kind of uh, measurements, are very similar. So, for instance, the um, uh, the displaced population is often very disproportionately uh, black women and indigenous women. So that's you know that's one way that, and I think this disproportionality also kind of helps explain the the spaces in which they do come together to articulate policies and new visions of organizing and imagining what the Colombian nation state uh, should do or can do type of thing.
0: So kind of with that, what is the historical significance of uh, Francia Márquez, who's Colombia's first black female vice president, considering that in particular, you know, Afro-Colombians have been not legitimized as part of the state? Oh, it's absolutely Uh,
1: remarkable and not only because she herself is a black woman that in itself is like a a huge revolutionary achievement but also because of her politics she's a woman from that comes from a a, a very important and often under kind of value trajectory of a progressive of progressive movements in Colombia she comes from very grassroots politics so it's so it's also kind of a representative of uh, progressive ethnic policy, uh, politics in the co- in the country. So in that sense, it's very remarkable. Just as an indication of how kind of significant her ent- um, she has been so far, or actually during the campaign itself, um, when there were the primaries were happening, and you know it's not the same as primaries in the US. So I'm just using that to to simplify. But she essentially received the second largest vote in the country after the current president Gustavo Petro, and over some of the most visible, powerful men in the country, and I should add all white men. So that was that was incredibly significant. And the way that she was able to do that was because she has, I think, this remarkable ability to articulate policy and connect with uh with the struggles of you know of average Colombians who are struggling in many ways and to of course center Black and Indigenous concerns. Um, but also uh, she did so well that he forced the other candidates to essentially pick a Black vice president for all, like all the tickets essentially ended up, uh, most of them, I think with the exception of one or two, to pick a Black vice president. And that is remarkable. She she has forced also a conversation about race and racism, and often because of the incredible racism that she has faced, uh, both in social media, but also by media and just by by average people, so I think that has been very remarkable to see how it's not that race the racism wasn't like wasn't happening, but she has forced a public conversation that wasn't there. And as someone who's who studies these questions from the late nineteenth century, that is quite remarkable. Um, the other thing that is very central is that who is seen as who can be imagined as being a leader. Who can be imagined as doing policy has also changed. So, like we have seen the appointment of many Black and Indigenous people to positions of power, and this wouldn't have happened without without Francia. I I don't think this is as much the product. This is not the product of the traditional Colombian left. This is this reflects the the struggles of the Black and Indigenous movements in Colombia, which the ones were uh, kind of. Involved in the current political project are certainly from the left, but but a left that thinks about race, that thinks about ethnicity, that thinks about collective lands is a is a is a special kind of genealogy uh, within the left. Uh, you could argue, and so we have, for instance, the the Colombian ambassador to the U.S. is an Afro-Colombian man. The Colombian ambassador to the UN is an indigenous woman. Like these are remarkable things that in some ways that I don't think can be wholly reduced to being symbolic. It's also kind of seeking to change the narratives about how we think as being a political leader, a legitimate political leader, and as someone who, who are making the policy and having access to power, that is quite um, remarkable. And I, and a lot of it is, is Francis doing so.
0: Um, kind of on that note, she was present in October. Um, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, um, with when he made announcement that the U.S. will be the first international company to the ethnic chapter of the which you had previously mentioned the 2016 peace accords. Um, kind of what is the significance of, I suppose that that linking with the United States that the U.S. is putting this out here as kind of a key part of that peace accord. And do you think this will have any bearing? Kind of on the mobility of Afro-Colombians and Indigenous peoples in the future.
1: Yeah, I think it was actually a really, as I mentioned, I I I follow closely the work of the UN Commission, so it was very remarkable because first, it is the product of intense Black and Indigenous mobilization and loving. I think it is not happening because the US, you know, automatically decided to think this was important, but it was kind of. Um, intense loving that was happening uh, from the side of, of of the Ethnic Commission. And is it is in some ways surprising, but in other ways, it's also not. Like there is this kind of uh, interesting tradition of Black and Indigenous activists using international spaces, including the Congressional Black Caucus, to pressure the Colombian state to do certain things when the Colombian state is not receptive to their claims and demands. So in that sense, it's very, it, it is... It's not the first time that something like this has happened. There's kind of earlier histories to it. But it is important in the sense that throughout the previous administration, there was a very clear effort to not, there was a very systematic effort to essentially dismantle the peace accord and to not implement its most potentially transformative aspects of it. And one of it being the ethnic chapter. Um, And the ethnic chapter essentially means that uh, the, how the peace process is implemented needs to have an ethnic lens and it needs to recognize the constitutional rights of uh, of ethnic communities in the country. So just to briefly um, explain what it does, so I think it was, it was important to bring some kind of an external person actor to monitor or to create some kind of accountability that it is um, implemented. And Francia has has was part of the of the ethnic commission. she was involved in the peace negotiations so this is also kind of uh you can trace it in some ways to her own political involvement. and I'm not sure this would have happened if she wasn't in that um in that position and if if you didn't have different actors kind of being at the forefront of Colombian's diplomatic policy. so I think it's an a, both kind of an outcome of the intense activism of the ethnic Commission and efforts to be uh, to gain visibility and to for is for for the chapter itself to be implemented fully, um, but it also shows what this kind of political moment, this kind of opening that has been created by having a progressive government and by having someone like uh, Francia Marquez in power, uh, kind of allows. And I guess now we'll see what that actually means in practice. I think it's early to tell um what it will do but hopefully you will create kind of an external agent that can pressure for the ethnic chapter to actually be
0: implemented okay thank you um that's actually my last kind of question um but do you have anything else you'd like to add um before we finish
1: no just just want to say just to conclude i i i think that the and then Colombia has attracted a lot of interesting and very rich academic attention because of what happened in the 1990s. For the fact that I think to a North to a US audience, it's kind of very strange that Afro-descendant people have access to collective lands, or that, uh, or or that the Black and Indigenous women are playing such a kind of visible role in. Uh, In the country today, but just to know, like, as a historian, like, of course, it's worth kind of thinking through the earlier histories and manifestations of the struggles that kind of make um, the present possible, uh, for lack of a better word. And thank you, thank you again for inviting me.
0: All right. Well, thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, We were very excited to have you on.